The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Many times we feel paralyzed by fear and body hatred. In order to feel better about ourselves and live the life we really want to manifest, we have to own up to our difficult feelings and self-sabotaging thoughts and behaviors. We all enter this world naked. Now it's time to feel good naked. No matter what your body size or life circumstances, this is Feel Good Naked Radio. And your host is Laura Redmond. On this program, Laura will help you become more embodied, self-empowered, and mindful to take charge of whom you really are and to live the life you deserve to live. Now, here is your host, Laura Redmond. Welcome to Feel Good Naked Radio. I am your host, Laura Redmond, and it is a great privilege and honor to come to you every week with great information that helps you live a happier life, a more embodied life, and to become more aware of those things that might be keeping you from that joy or exuberance or embodiment. And today, oh man, am I looking forward to this conversation. I am lucky to have nailed an interview today with Brian G. Cox, who is a licensed therapist here in Oregon, who studied at San Diego State University in California, and who is a master of explaining life's complexities. For 21 years, Brian has been working with individuals and couples struggling with life transitions, including the intrusion from past traumatic events. For the last decade, Brian has specialized working with men in midlife, dealing with the compression of past and future, conscious and unconscious events and thoughts. And he is the perfect person to come on today to talk about narcissism and midlife. Welcome, Brian. Thank you, Laura. I'm so happy to have you, and I was doing a lot of studying and research for this show, and I just want to let the listeners uh, know, just because, again, this whole idea of narcissism is so current, uh, not only in the uh, president-elect, but also in just the culture we live in. So I was studying, you know, for anyone out there who's going, well, where did narcissism start, or what is it? Uh, Narcissus in classical mythology, was a youth who fell in love with his own image reflected in a pool, Mm -hmm. and he wasted away from unsatisfied desire, whereupon Mm -hmm. he was transformed into the flower. So, that's just to give listeners an idea of where the term originated and how it became part of the dialogue of now. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, bring us yeah. to present day, like like if you're in, in session or you're trying to understand how to help someone get a hold of what narcissism is, please tell us, what. how do you define it in today's world? It's, you know, the, the word culturally is used, um, usually connotes arrogance or self-centeredness or just somebody who's very egocentric. 
Um, but the heart of narcissism is a, is, lies in childhood trauma. Um, the narcissist, because of inadequate mirroring in early childhood and abandonment terror, becomes attached to his own image, just like the, the, the uh, mythology that you cited. There's two different endings to the story of Narcissus. One is that he drowns in the pool. The other is that he's forever conscribed to continue to stare into his own image. But the, the heart of narcissism is actually a terror of one's own emptiness. Mm. And because I'm so afraid of my emptiness, I'm propping up a grandiose image of myself. And I collect relationships around me that, that must continue to reflect that grandiose version of myself back to me. And, of course, the moment that you stop doing that, we're done. I turn away from you. I go find other, other people who are willing to kind of uh, uh, emotionally contract with me to, to do that job, to reflect back to me that, that blown-up image of myself. That's a, that's so, a better understanding. When, when you talk to people who are trapped in that broken mirror, talk to people who, are, who get caught up in the system of a narcissist, um, there's just a lot of resonance when you tell the story that way because that's the, the deeper, truer thing that is happening. When you say childhood mirroring, what is that? Help me understand what that is. The child, the, the newborn baby early on, the, the pre-verbal newborn baby uh, has no psychological or experiential understanding of its own existence but in the gaze of the primary caregiver. So if, if that, when you think about um, the disruption that happens in that, in that uh, bonding and, and relational process, the baby is looking into the face of the mother and what we now know is that the baby is emulating minute facial musculature changes in the face of the mother and in, in the communication is going on in nanoseconds. The child is, is mirroring the mother in nanoseconds. So that, that produces the dendritic growth in the, in the primary brain of the child. So the, the brain that, that creates the seat of the cell, creative, intuitive, transcendent. Kids who don't get that kind of mirroring um, tend to grow up really fixated on the external world. So this, we're talking about like early attachment problems. And it's not that it cannot be repaired. It's just that it might be akin to like learning a language. It's kind of tougher to learn a language when you're 25 than when you're two and three. Right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So let me just repeat that back so I can understand it a little better. If I'm a baby Mm -hmm. and my mother is my primary caretaker and she is looking into my eyes or feeding me or dressing me or putting me to bed or or helping me as I wake up from a nap, I am Mm -hmm. looking into her face as if I were looking into that water that we refer to as the reflection. The reflection becomes Mm -hmm. her face, her eyes, her Mm -hmm. gestures. Yeah. And I'm getting yeah, and that she, as a baby. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm feeling yeah. that as a baby, but I don't know how that's Im- Im- impressing me as a human being. But I am getting a message there that starts my journey with how I feel about myself. Yes, yes. Uh, if you talk to a mother 
um, with maybe uh, maybe her first newborn. Mothers talk about this fierce love they have for their children. Um, not all mothers have that. Some mothers are distracted because they're living with an abuser. Perhaps there's a drug use problem. There's um, environmental stressors that interrupt there being enough of that, that loving mirroring from the mother to the child. There's any number of things that can disrupt that. So as a child, can I get that from a caregiver if my mother is not available in that way? Am I able to get that kind of affirmation from a caregiver, or does it only come from that mother? No, I, I, I think there are many, many stories of, of children and even, you know, later age children, late age children, even, even uh, um, teenagers who find compensatory mirroring, a teacher, a coach, uh, and do some of that attachment healing a little more latently. Um, there's stories of a, of a perhaps a grandparent that's present in the midst of a mother whose whose chaos or depression disrupts her ability to do that kind of mirroring. Yeah, and and the, and of course babies are uh, are can be very resilient and adaptable. So they're they're searching their environment for something that will will bring them life. Boy, that's so interesting at 55 almost to think about because in my life I had a caretaker and her name was Lucille Samuel. And when I go into my memory or I think about my childhood, her face is the first face that pops into my conscious memory and then the second Mm -hmm. face is my grandmother and not my maternal Mm -hmm. mother. So I would be a baby that most definitely got that positive messaging from Lucille Samuel and my grandmother and thinking about my mother's reality, she just wasn't able to be that figure for me. So I'm so grateful to yeah. have had Lucille and my grandmother. But but let's say someone has never had any of that positive reflection and now they're on their way to being a narcissist, yes, or or help me see then that that life path of that human that didn't get that reinforcement and now has a lack of self-worth, self-love. Let, let's go further down the road of, okay, now that baby is growing up and they didn't get that reflection. Then what happens? How do they then turn into that narcissist? Well, yeah, that's, that's, a, good, that's a, a great question because why do you, why do some kids who maybe suffer a similar fate maybe don't? And by the way, we all we have to make the distinction. We all have narcissistic traits. That doesn't make one a narcissist. You know, kind of a full-blown narcissist. There's a to diagnose that it's it's uh, it's a pervasive uh, personality problem. So why do why do some kids with inadequate uh, mirroring or or a, a terrifying kind of a abandonment experience in childhood? not go that route. And I think I think you mentioned part of the reason why not, and that is that when you think about the nature of life itself, that for you, Lucille was life-giving and maybe perhaps even life-saving in some ways. Mm-hmm. That she was there in, in lieu of perhaps the one who should have been there, which is your mom. So, mm-hmm. But the, the pathway of narcissism, one of the things that... that 
one of the patterns that I see is that kids become very kind of focused on the external world. Because there, there's kids who don't get the mirroring don't get the meta message that there's actually something within you that is worthy of your curiosity. You see? There's something. Yeah. Yeah. So then you become very uh, fixated. You fixate on things that aren't heart or soul. They're external yeah, yeah. or grand or f- like I'm trying to think of that young adult who might be a narcissist in the making and would that be the the young person who wants more games than anyone has ever had or greater a big loud car or the grandiosity can be it's it's not always obvious or is it no no you know what there's there's a, a great book on on the subject it's called the object of my affection is in my reflection and in this book the author uh Roquel Lerner spells out she she kind of takes us uh through the different faces of, of narcissism because it can be quite tricky. And, and that's what makes it, I mean, I think the thing, the thing that might, might even be more, more dangerous than the obvious narcissist is the, um, perhaps the, the charming narcissist, the, the one that wants to rescue you, the one that has the answers for, for your problems, the one that, is, that, is, that competently tells you that he can, he can kind of fix your problems. So um, there are cerebral narcissists. She, she splits up cerebral and some somatic narcissists. Uh, that, that might be getting a little too, too uh, into the clinical aspects of it, maybe not terribly of interest, but perhaps, um, perhaps I, could, I could share the story of The Wizard of Oz. Oh, please, please. Yeah, uh, so one of the most uh, famous movies of the, of the 20th century, The Wizard of Oz, was written by a man named Frank Baum who studied Sufism. And most people don't know that The Wizard of Oz is actually a Sufi mythological story. So in Sufism, um, we're trying to balance out the thinking, the feeling, and the instinctive centers. So you have the Tin Man looking for a heart. You've got the, uh, the, the Scarecrow, if I only had a brain. And you have the Lion trying to get back to his instincts, which is courage. And then you have Dorothy, who represents all of them, who's trying to get back home. And so because each one of them is desperate and does not believe that they have what they're searching for, they go on a long journey to seek out a powerful other that does have what they're looking for. And so there they are standing in front of the great Oz, shaking in their shoes, while the Oz is, is telling them to bow down, be mesmerized by my power, you know. And, and uh, finally, the little dog runs over and pulls the curtain back, and there's a scared little man pulling levers and pushing buttons. Mm. And then, of course, the great, great Oz says, never mind that little man behind the curtain, you know, continue to be mesmerized. But I think the more powerful aspect of the story may be that when we feel desperate and don't believe that we have what we're searching for, we might unluckily run into a person who tells us that he has what we're looking for and fosters a dependency 
in us, rather than finding a person, an empowering person who says, you know what? You do have what you're looking for. You just haven't woken it up yet. Mm. Yeah. And you see the difference? That a person yeah. who's very desperate, who seeks a powerful other, can get caught in that trap. And like we mentioned earlier, once you get caught in that trap, it's kind of like the Hotel California, you know? <laughs> yes. Well, you know? I was... I- I mean, I, I found this quote this morning that I put on my Instagram, Feel Good Naked Radio, and it's, the lion is most handsome when looking for food. Hmm. And I love that, that idea, is- with, right, with narcissism, because they are so seductive. And I think we have to really hmm. emphasize that for the listeners, that you don't know you're in their web, or as you said when we opened, you can't feel that you're trapped in the broken mirror or the sticky trap. It's it's mm-hmm. very subtle, but it's extremely seductive. And I think that yeah. is the great important part to help listeners realize that if you're in that trap and you're being pulled into that web of that narcissist, you don't know it. You don't know it until until you know it. And it's generally quite a quite a quite a while later if not several decades later so what would be a way that you could help someone like what would be something that would be a warning sign where you might realize wait i i'm not sure this person might be a narcissist H- how would one sense that or know that in the very early stages of falling in love or with that because i don't know if you can really love a narcissist, which I want to get to in a minute, but what would be an early thing that would be a warning signal? Yeah. I I could probably come up with a couple off the top. One is, one is that, that, uh, with a narcissist, the, the abusive narcissist, he's either going to be at your feet or at your throat. He might, he might worship you as an image worthy of his own, but, uh, if you if you break ranks with doing that that work of reflecting back his grandiose self, then he's at your throat. Um, another sign would be just the bait and switch. I mean, once once you're caught in the lair, everything changes, and and the narcissist is intent on degradation and keeping you in your place. He will not let you up. And those of you listening who who are hearing this are, I'm sure, resonating with, with that experience. He will not let you up. He will not apologize for his offenses. Um, or, or if he does apologize for his offenses, it's because there's some sort of secondary gain that he wants to get you back in. Maybe he finds that you have a foot out the door. He's got to get you back in his lair. So those are all things. that, And, and then probably the kicker is, how terrifying is the narcissistic rage? If you can imagine a three-year-old having a tantrum, just lost their mind, but now that's in the, that's in the body of a grown man. That's in the red-faced, screaming rage of a, of a grown man. That's pretty scary stuff. Mm, God, yeah, I'll say. So why... Why is that? Like, give us an understanding of now you've got the dynamic of the early signs. Um, you're not getting what you need. You're not being listened to. I don't. I don't think you feel heard mm-hmm. or or valued in partnership mm-hmm. with a narcissist. But why is it that that person's 
individual power is so threatening to the narcissist? Um, because I think I think the narcissist carries with him um, an absolute terror of abandonment. As the equation goes, the clinical equations go: lack of adequate mirroring in attachment plus abandonment terror equals entitlement, destructive mm. entitlement. So the, uh. the narcissist has has no capacity to bring self, has little self-awareness, and yet he's hyper-aware of people's reaction to them. So everything for the narcissist is, is external and is a commodity, including people. Uh, you see? Yeah. 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 I just had a, I had so, a light bulb moment when you just said that. When, when you were explaining it right then, I thought, because you don't get that affirmation from the mother or the caretaker, you never have a sense of what it feels like to be loved. Therefore, Mm -hmm. you seek love in a very unlovable way that has nothing Mm -hmm. to do with love. Nothing at all. That's correct. The the, the narcissist uh, substitutes adoration and admiration for mutuality and love. They, they, in their in their core, they've not had the experience enough of a of that loving experience to even know that it exists. So, in their own minds, love is admiration. You must continue to admire me. And, and look at all that I've done for you. Right, everything's external again. Yeah. And that's that's why it can be seductive, I think, is because in the very beginning stages of falling for a narcissist, it's a lot of um, things, uh, affirmations, there's a great sense of being built up. I, th- I think one feels really built up by that approval of that narcissist but you don't realize that's the dynamic and then all of a sudden you might need something that's emotional or you're in conflict and you want to say here's my part what's your part and then for whatever reason calling out quote that narcissist on what is your part can make them absolutely a mess because there is no self-recognition Yes, no, no ownership, absolutely no ownership of any of their own shadow, which is, which is the work of all of us to do. And I, I agree, Laura, that the trap, the trap initially, it feels good because that, that charming narcissist is intent on, on gaining possession. And if we find ourselves desperate and alone, we do want to hear those things. We do want, you know... We, we do want that reflected back to us. Your listeners should know, however, that there is a psychological profile for a narcissist. There is not a psychological profile for a person who might find themselves with a narcissist. Mm. Other than maybe you're a little codependent, you know, maybe you're, you're but your intent was to enter a, a mutually caring relationship. And, and by the time you find out that it isn't there, it's it's a pretty shocking loss of illusion. Mm. Yeah. Oh, huge. I, I, I think of the I think of the frog in the kettle, and all of us have the the capacity that that story of the frog who gets put in the kettle and the heat is turned up. 
and the water is gradually getting hotter and hotter while the frog is is regulating itself to these conditions that will ultimately kill it. At any point, the, the frog has the capacity to get out of that kettle, but it's that, that, that seductive process is much like being trapped in the reflection of a, of a narcissist. Brian, do you know if, if you're a narcissist, do you know you are or you are fully unaware that you are? Fully unaware. Oh, man. In fact, one of the ways to know you're not a narcissist is to actually have conversations about some of the narcissistic traits that you might have. Um, but, but the narcissist is pretty uh, fortified, completely, completely defended, and has gathered an entourage around him that, that is uh, kind of drank the Kool-Aid, so to speak. And, and you've used him, but it can be a woman, too. Narcissism is not gender-specific. Is that correct? It is not gender-specific. Um, it, it, I think it, uh, the literature would, would say that it shows up differently in women. Um, uh, that, that I think that the stats are something that one author says one in 100 people could carry the diagnosis. And of those 100, uh, if you had 100 narcissists in a room, 75% of them would be men. Wow. And uh. In, uh, in, in our field, however, I think... I think uh, narcissistic women might be harder to detect because they tend to carry other types of diagnoses. And, and we are remiss in our field to not recognize that we tend to, to diagnose um, women with personality problems with bipolar or um, um, uh, histrionic or uh, um, actually borderline. Yeah. Instead of narcissism as a female. Instead of of narcissism. So let's say a man or a woman is sitting in your office and you are thinking, man, I got a narcissist here. How do you help them? How do you you start that process of pointing out where do they, where where can help be had? Well, they don't tend to darken the door of a therapist's office very often. And if they do... If they do, it's right on the heels of a narcissistic wound. So um, getting the narcissist to buy into how do you feel about feeling something, ma'am? You know, this, this is going to hurt because you, you've, you've built your whole life up around um, an egoic facade. And it's going to really take some time. It's going to take years for us to get to the bottom of this. And that, that's the truth of it, is that there is no, there's no easy fix for any of us in, in our deeper complexes, but for the narcissist, uh, that is especially true. So you may start and, that help by just explaining egoic, how an egoic life looks just to get them tuned in to that motivator. It is the ego. So maybe explaining the ego or understanding the ego would be a way to start their recovery or their awareness. Yes. Uh, if, if I think maybe for a lot of these guys, if, if the theory doesn't cohere, they're going to be gone. But another way for them to be gone sooner is um, that they just, for whatever reason, they have the, 
the power, the time, the money to kind of re-up their, re-up their, um, their egoic image. So I, I would say it's, it's just pretty tough work, pretty tough work with the narcissist. So Brian, yeah. we're going to, we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, I think it would be super interesting to take a public figure like our president elect and just sort of use it as a PowerPoint per se to explain to the listener how he, Donald Trump, would be an example of a narcissist and all that sort of seduction and smoke and mirrors and and what that that feels like, but also what that looks like. So we'll Mm -hmm. be right back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. If the financial markets interest you, if you want to potentially earn a higher return, if you're not satisfied with your investment returns, or if you're only making 1% on your investments sitting in the bank, do you see the stock market hitting record highs but feel you have no one to trust? Voice America's own Jordan Kimmel, the host of Magnet Investing for over seven years, is applying his strategies of magnet investing and is managing individual accounts. Jordan Kimmel has joined InvestView, the Red Bank, New Jersey investment education and asset management firm. And his team can help you. Contact Jordan and the team at InvestView at 732-380-7271 or by email at jkimmel at investview.com. If you would like a complimentary portfolio review or to speak to a representative, call us. Past performance of investments are not indicative of future results. Investing is inherently risky. All recommendations should be researched by the investor. Call InvestView at 732-380-7271. That's 732-380-7271. 7271 You are listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Laura Redmond. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That number again is 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to feelgoodnakedradio at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Feel Good Naked Radio. I am your host, Laura Redman, and I am extremely happy and proud to have on my show today, Brian Cox. We are talking about narcissism, how to understand it, how to detect it, and how to um, 
get out of it if you're in love with someone who might be a narcissist. Right now, I want to go to Donald Trump. Our president-elect, Brian at break, was telling me about a recent uh, diagnosis that came out regarding his personality. So, Brian, please tell us what you learned about his personality type with this discussion of narcissism. Well, I think I think uh, just as a, as a caveat to that, it, a, a lot of people who work in my field would would not smile upon diagnosing from afar that that having a personal experience with a person and and kind of going through the rigors of. But, however, ha- having said that, and I'm not a fan of diagnosing from afar, uh, the consensus as to Donald Trump's psychiatric issues is nearly unanimous. The textbook, narcissistic personality disorder, and this is by trusted. Um, uh, Gabor Mate, Dr. Gabor Mate wrote an article on it where he he cites uh, uh, Tony Schwartz, Trump's ghostwriter for his 1987 uh, bestseller, The Art of the Deal, reported that his client uh, ha- had no attention span and fidgeted like a kindergartner who cannot sit still. Um, but I think people are asking themselves, what is the root of Trump's bizarre behavior? This guy who's who is way too close to our nuclear codes. Um, but what we perceive as the adult personality often reflects compensations that a helpless child unwittingly adopted in order to survive. So these adaptations can become wired into the brain, persisting into adulthood. So that underneath all, underneath all this manifestation of this, this ugliness, the you know, the misogyny and the racism and the, and the, the hateful speech and the, the lack of impulse control is childhood trauma. Yeah. 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 So that's what we're looking at. It, it, it's actually a very sad story. Yeah. Now, the, the, I think that's the trap, though. Part of the trap is that there are, there are highly attuned people, um, you yourself, Lar, uh, who, who, somehow make contact with that terrified little boy, they see that little boy mm-hmm. and, and they want to help that little boy. And so they extend empathy and compassion, which, um, gosh, what does the narcissist do with that, right? Yeah. The narcissist, what the narcissist does with that energy is halfway across the, the space between us, transforms that into that we agree with them that the world has screwed them over and that we agree with them that they're entitled and uh, they don't receive the gift of empathy as it was given. No empathy. Isn't that the most terrifying aspect of that personality? And and I think what... But but back to Donald Trump, one thing I note when you're saying what what you're saying is look at how seductive, back to that idea of the seductive energy of a narcissist. Look how many people signed on for that sort of hoopla. I mean, he is uh, the, the stunning and, and striking example of that personality. But, but yeah, again, look, yeah. look at how people just absorb it. They want it. They, they feel it. They, they're attracted to it. It is very important, I think, to continue to repeat the attraction. The seductive nature of the narcissist uh-huh. is so impactful when you're in its spell. And so mm-hmm. getting 
I, mean, I think Donald Trump is that is sort of the blinking neon of that personality. But let's go back into more of that that subtle personality disorder in someone that would be a narcissist. It's a lack of empathy. It is not a good listener. It is someone who can't take any responsibility for their part in a problem. Mm-hmm. And in the very beginning of a love affair with someone who might be in that personality disorder, you don't really understand that this is going to get worse. It won't get better. There won't be mm-hmm. the educational curve of mm-hmm. self-identity or responsibility. And you will mm-hmm. feel crazier and crazier and crazier as you stay on that path with that personality type. Yes. So. Yes. When I when I was asking you at break, I wanted to let all the listeners know I, I received your, your notes. Thank you. I love your feedback. You can give all your feedback on Feel Good Naked Radio on Facebook, but I really love the notes. And a lot of notes came in with this show in mind where I was asked, please ask Brian Cox, is there any way to love a narcissist? That is a great question. And the short answer is no. And the reason why is that I, I think the, the way to think of this is love, intimacy and narcissism is a contradiction in terms. If, if I am, intimacy is when I let you see into me. And if I am unwilling to see into me, there's no way I'm going to let you, I'm not going to let you see into me either. And I think that might be one of the subtle laments of, that you could be dealing with a narcissist or or just a dude who's emotionally frozen and has a tough time letting people in. There is a difference. The narcissist will not let you in. You're not getting in. So, uh, so there's years of trying and getting nothing but uh, degradation back. The narcissist actually can have a violent response to being loved because they see, they see overtures of love as entrapment. Mm. So they, they can actually have a violent response to, to the genuine love that, a, that an empathic person wants to give and share. Oh, yeah. man, that's so interesting. And, and that, that leads me to trying to understand the difference with a midlife crisis. And I know you work so often with people in this time of life that we call midlife and sometimes the profile of a midlife crisis can come off as a narcissistic person who is selfish and no empathy but but I would like for you to explain the difference between a midlife crisis and this narcissistic personality disorder because they do look a little similar (laughs) they they can't they can seem to to be similar Um, one last thing on Trump, um, and then we can maybe we can go right into that that midlife crisis. I, I think we could we could clearly say that uh, that when the midlife life crisis train comes through, it really is an invitation to integration and wholeness. It it it, it can come in uh, through unpleasant circumstances, but it's an invitation to give up the life we've constructed to live the life that is that awaits us. To both the Late great uh, um, mythologist. What's his name? Uh, well, never mind. I'll come back to that. Joseph Campbell. 
Um, yeah. Trump, Hero's journey. Trump. Yeah. Trump. Uh, uh, Trump. Uh, according to biographers, was a, was a, his father was a workaholic, ruthless, emotionally cold, and authoritarian. So he was a man who believed that that life is a comp- is a competition where the killers win. His older brother, uh, in a classical response to that kind of pain in the family, died an early death from alcoholism. Whereas now we're seeing the younger favorite child is now self-destructing on the world stage. But the one word on misogyny. Misogyny is a son's outwardly projected revenge on a mother who is unable to protect him. Mm. Often from a ruthless father. Yeah. And are you connecting that misogyny with narcissistic personality disorder? Um, that I believe so, because the, the lack of mirroring, typically the mothers are responsible for the bulk of the mirroring. When they didn't show up enough, there's almost a natural hatred, hatred towards the mother that gets projected over, over the grand array of the feminine realm. Hmm. Yeah. So midlife, then, uh, I think I think in midlife, um, that can go so many different ways. But this this invitation to, uh, as life goes, somewhere around eight years of age, we we lose our innocence. Prior to that, we have this childhood. It all is semi normal. We have this childhood that is it's magical, and and we are innocent, and there's radiance and vitality. And something happens usually around eight years of age where we uh, we enter a scarier world where those things are suddenly, some things are suddenly not true. Maybe there's a bullying incident. Maybe mom and dad get divorced and my world is turned upside down. Maybe maybe there's an abuse event. But in any, in any event, we tend to lose our innocence around eight. Or <laughs> if you can imagine the golden ball and the mythology of Iron John, the golden ball rolls into the, the wild man's cage and we spend a lifetime trying to figure out how to get that golden ball back. So midlife is a, is a time where we can't get our innocence back, but we can, it's almost as if right on cue, the parts of us that went into exile, the parts of us that, uh, that got flung into the unconscious now suddenly uh, reappear and we have to deal with them and it's it's unpleasant it's it can be very unpleasant because um, there's something about midlife that causes the loss of our illusions the loss of it, we're not actually losing control we're actually losing the illusion of control mm. you see yeah so many 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 people settle for religious systems that, that keep them asleep, keep them in denial, so they can keep their illusions of control and, and certainty. Um, that's one response. Uh, and other people decide to take the ball and go home. I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to play. There's a cynical um, hardening, if you will. So I think the great challenge of life and midlife is knowing that we're all a little effed up. <clears throat> Can I say that on the radio? Yeah, yeah. We are, <laughs> we are uh, we're lost. And no one really 
has the complete existential answer to our dilemma. So the next question is, will you participate? If you can't control this thing like you thought you could, are you, are you going to keep showing up? Are you going to commit yourself to presence? Right? Yes, yes, I am. Yes, I will. Yes, yes. Yeah, I said yes, yeah, I will. Yes. The, yes, we get to be awake and alive. And, and uh, <laughs> in, in all of this, this, this topsy-turvy, uh, this, this journey, we get to be alive. That's a privilege. And uh, it just doesn't feel that like that on every single day. <laughs> well, no, and I think that the, the path of self-identity is always changing, ongoing, at times extremely challenging and difficult at a soul level and at other times because of the work one will do on this path of self-identity and self-esteem great joy great celebration an understanding of self although i don't know if we ever know ourselves fully or 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 in totality i i don't think we ever can or will um Maybe David Bowie is the closest figure to, to doing that, to have that kind of conscious death, you know, where we are so self-aware that we end our life with an acute understanding of who we are. But I like mm-hmm. the idea that it's an infinite road that is constantly unfolding, evolving, but in order to experience the joys and the setbacks you have to be self-aware. You cannot be in denial as to who you may be or who you wish to achieve in that personality of yours, knowing that the, the setbacks are where you've been before you get to the awareness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a lot of existential you're, you're, language, so maybe you can simplify you're, you're it. You're pointing to some really, some pretty awesome stuff, and I think all of our mystics um, would encourage us to understand that all great truths are paradoxical. So, yes, self-awareness is, is imperative, but I think that we humans are, have to recognize that we are so complex that there is that, that the idea of arriving somewhere, yeah, maybe you will. Maybe you'll arrive somewhere for a minute, but the train's coming again to, uh, to once again rid you of your illusions, and then are you willing to do that? I, I recently attended a... a a science and non-duality conference in San Jose. And the title of the conference was On the Edge of the Unknown. Mm. And the, the encouragement over and over again is for those of us who, who decide to deal with the reality that we don't know, um, there is, I, in some ways, that makes the journey a lot more exciting. Because if you've just kind of settled down and you actually think that you do know, well, then what, what's going to get you out of bed in the morning? What are you curious about? What are you wondering about? Um, Richard Rohr, the great Christian mystic, talks about in 300 AD when the Romans took over the church, which is the beginning of the Catholic Church, it produced a split in the church. One pathway was a pathway of knowing, and those are the people who just kind of bought into the doctrine, signed up, and uh, actually believed that they... They have all the answers. The other pathway is the mystic path. The mystic path is a commitment to really not lying to ourselves about all that we don't know. So there's more of a chance for some wisdom there. That's the 
that is the, the wisdom tradition, is that we can't really nail this thing down. So then back to the narcissism, what occurs to me when you're saying that is if you're in life, love, partnership with a narcissist, you never have the opportunity to go down the path of the mystic life because there's not the self-awareness of the pathology that holds back the self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that's, I think that's called the, the death of contemplation. Yeah. Right? That, uh, that. And, and in regard to the narcissist, the narcissist doesn't want you peering into any of that. You know, I've already given you your doctrine, so that's, that's what we're settled with. Oh, and, so and no, nothing can really be considered that's going to put any kind of blemish on my, on my image. And if you become the blemish of my image, then if I understand what you were saying earlier, I will discard you and find someone mm-hmm. else who will love my image, who will feel love is the wrong word because we just understood from you that love wouldn't be the way to really interface with a narcissist, but I will find someone who will reflect back to me how great my image is, and I will mm-hmm. discard you if you cannot do that. Is, is right. that a fair, that's a fair way to say it? That's a great way to say it, is that you will be discarded and summarily, and there will be no remorse. There will be no grief over the, there's no loss because nothing was had. I think people who, who wind up leaving a narcissist have to, when they, they go back to the story, they realize that there's just no there there. There was nothing there. And so really the grief the grief is about all the loss of time and about being contaminated by the narcissist view of them. That's, that's the grief work mm. and having to figure out how to love oneself again, one's true self. Mm. So let's say someone's listening today and they are concerned, worried, and perhaps a little terrified that they are in relationship with a narcissist and they don't want to be anymore. They want to get back their soul self. They want to find that road to mysticism and consciousness. What would be the first step someone could take to exit, get out of this thing before they're discarded? Man, I think the first thing that comes... uh that comes to mind is I think the narcissist wants to isolate you from sources of love. So to find the courage to reconnect to people whom you know, saw you, knew you, loved you, and uh, people with whom you, you experienced that, that mutuality. Um, you'll have to defy the laws and the rules of the narcissist. Although maybe maybe for some of you the narcissist has long since stopped caring about you and and now you're just being left alone so you can do what you want but he doesn't really care he's he's out kind of finding other sources of, of reflection and of course the other thing I I am a believer in therapy that's why I'm a therapist and I think working through working back to the story uh, with a therapist is is uh, is a good way to go. Doing, oh. some of the, doing some of the trauma work. Yeah. And reclaiming your life as you deserve to live it 
with the help of a guide who can say, you've been in the throes of a narcissistic experience. You, you know, you got to find your legs again. You got to find your feet again. You got to find the ground again. Because mm-hmm. when you get lost in that paradigm with someone, as you say, you're trapped. You're trapped mm-hmm. in a broken mirror that is like a sticky trap. And you don't you don't even know how to get your feet out of that stickiness. So love, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the great takeaway that you just said is the power of love, finding people that knew you before you fell into the trap of the narcissist who can reaffirm who you are as an individual outside of that mm-hmm. relationship and definitely getting therapy um, with someone who is trained to respect the trauma that can be a result of having lost the time that mm-hmm. is no longer the time you can get back, but you can move forward with a freedom and I think a liberation with the help of that guide or therapist and and that's mm-hmm. hopeful, very, very hopeful. And I think there's a lack of hope when you come out of that dynamic. You know, you don't really yeah. see the light. You can't figure out where the ground is and that can be a very hopeless state. So please take away anyone listening that there is there is hope, there is help. You can find Brian on the web. You can find me on the web. They're guides to help you be free from something that is so unsatisfactory to your heart and soul. And mm-hmm. Brian, Brian, what else would you say is just a good tool as the holidays are approaching? You know, I think there's a whole lot of anxiety in the air with the idea of being with family, certainly if you're with a narcissist or in an unhappy dynamic with one. What would be something that could just be a peaceful way to navigate today. One thing somebody can do today to give themselves a healthier approach to life without the narcissist. Wow. Yeah. What, what, uh, maybe the, that question goes, by the way, this is the heart of your, your radio show, Laura, is, is, is empowering people. And uh, mm-hmm. we're talking about a very disempowered group of people who are trapped in that mirror. Um, I would say maybe a gentle, a gentle encouragement to those of you out there who, who may feel like you're, you're trapped in that, that kind of experience is to get clinical with it. Meaning there's a couple of great, there's a lot of great books on being parented by narcissists. There's a book, uh, there's a book called um, uh, Trapped in the Mirror, Adult Children of Narcissists in Their, in their Struggle for Self by Elan Golem, PhD. And the one I mentioned before, The Object of My Affection is in My Reflection, Coping with Narcissists by Roquel Lerner. So do some reading about it. And I think that one of the comforts in reading about this kind of, of phenomena is that it is a phenomena. You're not alone. There are other brothers and sisters trapped in that kind of experience that... Uh, and And... Part of the trap, part of the thing that keeps keeps us trapped is probably the biggest thing is shame. And and how do we get out of the shame? And loving friendships and learning learning again how to love oneself. That is so helpful, Brian. So the great takeaway is go to a library, get on online and look at books. Learn more about these ideas if you're concerned that they may be part of your life. Go where the love is. Get help. 
with a great counselor. There are very few out there like Brian. Um, and I want to thank you for your time today. You are a beautiful human being and a guide that lights the way for many. So thank you, Brian. Thank you, Laura. And as we close every show with that wonderful idea that you complete you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Lar Redmond. Please join us again live next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be you and feel great in your own skin. <laughs>